Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. What is your greatest need? Right? I mean, it's Christmas time, right? Isn't that what the question is? What is it that you want more than anything else in the world? I mean, I don't know about you, but trying to get my grandchildren to tell me what they want and what they need, I mean, they don't need anything. That's, that's part of a problem. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. I haven't quite figured out which it is. I don't know. I don't know what my wife wants. I, I asked her, and she really, she doesn't need anything, and but isn't that, I mean, think about this. When we come to this time of year, it is about trying to establish what our want is. What is our need? Maybe this morning it goes beyond material things for you. Maybe it's your greatest need is that, that you want reconciliation in your family. That there's turmoil in your family relationships. Maybe, maybe it's in your marriage. And, and your greatest need is that, that your heart will soften or that your spouse's heart will soften. And, and you can have this this reconnection, this reconciliation that, is, that you've been longing for. Maybe your greatest need is that you need finances. It's, it's not material things per se, but you just need to be able to pay the bills. You just need a, a better job. You just need a, a better source of income. Maybe it's an educational thing. Maybe, maybe your greatest need is that you need, to, you need to ace this exam so that you can get this GPA, so that you can get into a college or a, or a school, a trade school, so that you can get that type of position. Maybe that is what's the burden in your greatest need. For some of you, your greatest need maybe is a health-related issue that it's just health has just been plaguing you. And, and maybe it's that you're, you're older and, and you're a little bit like me. My greatest need is just having an energy to get out of bed sometimes in the morning, right? To, to, have, to have purpose, to make sure that, that I'm, I'm pushing back against all the, the physical failed frailties that I have and, and to keep pushing because there's something more important than, than my own depravity and my own issues of my life sometimes, and there's greater things, and I need to push through it. The question that Christmas begs to ask us is, what is your greatest need? But see, here's, here's the thing that I think that I really want to try and make sure that as we, we start out today's message and we, and we really think about this, this Christmas season, is that we need to rightly frame up this question and this answer. Because without having a right understanding and this appreciation of what our greatest need is, Christmas will not mean anything. Because the reason that Christmas is so precious is because what it's announcing is that God has come to earth to meet your greatest need. One that you cannot meet. One that you cannot satisfy. You can never meet your greatest need. He said, Raleigh, what is, what is my, Pastor Raleigh, what is my greatest need then? Well, your greatest need is reconciliation with God. Your, your greatest need is, is to have a, a right standing, a, a beautiful, intimate relationship with, with God, the creator of the universe. And, and as, as humanity, we don't have that. That has been broken since the beginning of time when, when Adam and Eve first decided to go their own way and to, to eat of the fruit of the tree, even though what did God say? The day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. I, I just appreciate the, the candor and the straightforwardness of the word of God. The day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. 
They were without excuse. We today are without excuse. And, and, and what happened there? They succumbed to what they wanted. The serpent tempted them and says, well, what is it that you want? Because it's really not about what God wants. It's about what you want, which is what I just got done saying in the announcements. That our nation has turned to a place where we've said it's really not important what God wants. Yes, he's the creator of all things, but I can shelf him because I really want what I want. I'm really here to worship and please myself. And so I want what I want. And that, that, that force in us, that, that sinful nature, as Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, right? That we are dead in our sin. We are children of wrath. We, it's, it's our very nature to want to do this. And we need something. Our greatest need is to, to have a new nature, to get a new nature, to, be, to have a, a peace with God. Right? That's what we need. That, that should be our greatest need. That should be our greatest petition before the Lord is that, Lord, give us, give us a peace with you. I mean, peace comes in all shapes and forms a little bit, right? I mean, I want peace with my wife, amen? I mean, guys, don't we want peace with our wife? As spouses, we want peace, right? We want peace with our children. I remember a day, a time, a season in, in my, um, when I first got married, um, my adult wife had two children. They were 10 and 12. And, and uh, you know, when you were dating, it was cool. And they thought you were cool. And uh, then the longer then I started sitting down doing homework with them, I wasn't cool anymore. And then when they would rebel and discipline would have to be done, we were not at peace anymore. And I remember times that I'm embarrassed to, to share with you that I was screaming at the top of my lungs saying things I never would have thought I would have said to my children. Now, if there's any consolation, they were screaming back at me saying some really horrible things too. So it was equal. So I, I, we need peace in those moments, absolutely. We need peace in our world. Man, we, we, need, we need militaries to, to put down arms. We need, we need peace treaties to be upheld. We need, you know, all sorts of things that need to happen. We need peace inside the church, Right? I mean, sometimes we need peace inside this church. Do you think that, that this church always is at peace internally? Like the body of Christ is always at peace with each other? <laughs> no, we're not. There's conflict. We wrestle and, and we want peace. And all that is good. But see, none of that peace ultimately is going to be possible unless the greatest need is met, which is that reconciliation with God. A peace that, that transcends all understanding, right? That, that's the peace we ultimately need. What, what Paul talks about there in, in, in Philippians chapter 4, that this, this peace, this, this thing that just is beyond human comprehension, that we can have a peace in a world that is chaotic around us. And why do we need this? Is because this perfect fellowship with God was broken because of sin. Because we rebelled. And we're still rebelling. And so that's your big idea for this morning. Without Jesus, peace with God is impossible. With, I mean, that's, that's a very profound statement. Don't, don't miss that. Without Jesus, peace with God is impossible. There, there is no peace with God without him. And we're going to just begin to kind of look at why that is and, and what the problem is. You know, it's interesting, uh, our culture today, um, 
around the world, I mean, Christmas is like so celebrated, which is, in one respect, this great thing. You would think it's great. It's, it's celebrated in every culture around the world. I mean, they're celebrating. But they're not celebrating Jesus. They're not, they're not celebrating that, that God has come into the world to make peace because of sin and, and to reconcile them back to God. They're celebrating because this is just a great time to be happy and be joyful and, and to give presents. And, and, and the enemy has just so coded all of what Christmas really should mean to be distracting for us, right? All the, you know, here I am with all these glittery things, you know? It's all like these things to distract us from the real purpose. And so here we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. And we're going to dive into our text a little bit later in the message. We're going to talk a little bit about it. But I wanted the, the, the story to, to be read, the history books kind of be opened about what God did there and, and how he became a man and the announcement that he came. And, and we'll get to that. But let's first look at the problem. Because see, once again, before we really identify the problem in our life, we will not think that the coming of Christ, the first advent of him becoming born in a place called Bethlehem is all that great. But if we understand the problem, it'll become precious to us. In fact, when we were, Donnie was praying, and, and obviously it's, it's a very um, somber prayer of repentance and, and coming under uh, an understanding of God's holiness and his truth and, and understanding that we as people have, have rebelled against God and, and wanting to make sure that we, are, we hold fast to his truths. And, and it's so somber. We ended that and, and all of a sudden the band steps forward and we sing praise to God coming into the world. It seemed kind of like an awkward transition there for a second for me. But then I realized, what better transition the more we understand the depths of our problem, the more our praise should rise to him, right? Because he has delivered us from our greatest need. He's delivered us, and that's what we're going to look at. And so what's the first thing we see here? Sin severed our peace with God. Sin severed the peace. It was, it was dramatic. It was immediate. They sinned. They did what they were not supposed to do. They did what they were commanded not to do. They did what absolutely it was clear that they were not to do, and that was to eat of the tree and rebel against God. So what does God do? Well, we see multiple things in Genesis here, but I just want to read you one piece of it here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. He says, Therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what do we, what's the picture here? And we could talk about the punishments, and the serpent was punished, the, the woman was punished, the man was punished, all of the punishments. But the thrust of it is, is he drives them out of the garden, out of his presence. Sin severs our relationship with God. He removes us. And not only does he do that, but what does he do here? He puts an angel to guard the tree of life so that we cannot partake of it, signifying that now we will die without some type of reconciliation that now makes access to the tree of life possible again. So we are left to our own humanity. He drives us out. Sin severs our peace with God. Now, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3. You've heard this part of this verse many times, but a lot of times it's just written, uh, just read just briefly, just a few lines of it. 
And I want you to just kind of sit back and I want you to really take this in a little bit. Because Paul kind of sums up um, whether we are Jew or Gentile, which basically at that time was everybody, right? That, that here's our problem, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? He's just writing to the Jews now. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, we're under sin. We're under it. So he's speaking to the, kind of the Jews here. He says, we're no better off just because we've been doing the sacrificial system. We're still condemned because of sin. We're still under sin. We're no better off than they are. So don't, don't think highly of yourself. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, the use of their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's kind of the sum up right there, right? There's no fear of God. When you think of your greatest need and and reconciliation, is there any reverence to say, oh my gosh, I have sinned against the creator of the world? Do you have any fear there? And you say, well, I don't think we're supposed to be afraid of God. I don't know. Yeah, I think we are in some respects. We are to have a reverence of God. He's the creator. Look, I, I loved my father, but I feared my father. Right? Not because he beat me. Now, some of you may have had that horrible experience. Because my father was the authority, and I wanted his approval, and I wanted him to love me, and he did love me, and he demonstrated that, but sometimes that love was demonstrated in discipline, and I didn't like the discipline piece. And by God's grace, I did not get my mouth washed out with soap, and I did not get other things happen to me that my brothers did, because my dad was wore out by the time he got to me. (laughs) After two heart attacks and open-heart surgery, he chilled a little bit, right? But all that was just. See, here when it says that no one seeks God, sometimes we say, no, I, I, I sought him. I, I, I went to church. I didn't have a relationship with him. I went to church. I was seeking God. No, no, you weren't. You say, no, yeah, no you weren't. Let me, let me just frame that up a little. What you're seeking is fulfillment in your life somehow. You're seeking to, to have a better marriage. You're seeking to, 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 have, um, to fit in, to have fellowship, to to be part of something. There's all sorts of reasons people come to church. But at our core, and don't miss this, we do not come seeking Jesus. Because if we came seeking Jesus, what we'd really be saying is, we want to come and die. We want to come and give ourselves away for you. No one comes to church with that desire. We come seeking something for ourselves. Now, once we're there, by God's grace, we hear the gospel Hopefully the the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. We're convicted of our sin and we do die. But what Paul is saying is the motivation is not to come and die. The motivation is not to come and worship the creator of the universe. The motivation is to come and see what we can get out of this. What is good for us? And isn't that the issue when they were following Jesus? Many of them followed him because he was doing some really cool stuff. 
He was raising people from the dead. He was making, feeding five, 10,000 people. They wanted to do that. And then Jesus comes along and says, look, if you don't hate your father and mother, yes, even your own children, pick up your cross and follow after me. You cannot be my disciple. And man, that was a deal breaker. They left. Because see, they came. They weren't seeking him. And, and today, when, when people come to a church, and I'm so glad if you're, if you're a guest here this morning, I'm so glad you came. But just understand that because of your, your, your flesh and your, your sinful nature, you're not coming to seek him. By God's grace, he may be using circumstances to draw you so you can hear the gospel. And that is a wonderful, gracious thing that God is doing. So what's the next thing that we see? Not only has sin severed our peace with God, but sinners will receive their just wrath of God. Sinners will receive the just wrath of God. You're saying, well, Pastor Raleigh, isn't this Christmas? Is that the gift we're waiting for? Right? Is that the encouragement that we want at Christmas? Once again, I, I want to make sure that you understand the weight of the, of the need that we have so that Christmas becomes so precious and sweet. Because I want you to, I want you to love the first advent. I want you to, to appreciate the reading of, of Luke chapter 1 and, and the announcement of Christ and, and all that he brings. Because then we're looking for the second advent, right? The return of Christ. But we cannot appreciate those things if we do not understand the need. And so here we see that sinners will receive the just wrath of God. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 and 6. It says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these are the wrath of God coming. On account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. You say, well, yeah, that's now, right? The wrath of God is still coming. He's, in fact, Scripture says he's storing it up for mankind because it's coming. And, and we have been lulled into this thinking that, no, no, not us. No, not, not, I'm a good person. I, I'm not a bad person. The wrath is obviously for evil people. If you are not in Christ, there is no peace with God. There's no peace with God. He goes on here in Romans chapter 1, earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We talked about that, our suppression of the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. God is clear. We... You know, people say, well, the Bible, it's, you know, maybe mistranslated. It's hard to understand. No, not really. Now, there are some passages that are a mystery, absolutely. But God is clear in his word. You eat of that tree, you will surely die. The wrath of God is coming against mankind for all unrighteousness. And here are, what the, here are the things, sexual impurity, all of these things, covetousness, idolatry, greed, all those things. I don't know that that needs interpretation, that, that's what it says. Sinners will receive the just wrath. See, because, and that's the problem. That's the need that we have. We have this, this separation with God. We have this, this justified penalty on us, this wrath that is, that is due us. And the glorious thing is, is that God sends his son into the world 
to take that. Doesn't have to. Could have let us all be just cast away for him for eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So now what I want you to see is if this is, the, if this is our greatest need and our greatest need is reconciliation, our greatest need is peace with God because we, we definitely deserve the wrath of God. Now I want to show you that, that God is clear. In other words, that God has been his promising and, 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 and doing things to make sure that we're aware of what his plan is. We looked at that a few weeks ago about that God has a plan, right? This is kind of a piece of that. The third point I want to share with you is that peace with God has, was prophesied and promised. So God has been clear throughout history about all sorts of things. You eat of it, you'll die. He was promising all sorts of things and prophesying through the prophets. No, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't popular. We said that a few weeks ago. How would you have liked to have been a prophet in the Old Testament? Nobody wanted to hear what they had to say because it was impinging upon their life. Many of the prophets were killed and stoned to death or sawn in two because nobody wanted to hear it anymore, Right? And I will tell you, we are coming to a time in our culture and in our world where speaking truth is frowned upon. It is. It's offensive, just like the, just like the prophets were. Thus saith the Lord, and it was offensive, and so they killed them. I don't want to hear it. And we're coming to a place where our culture is trying to snuff out the truth of God's word. It used to be that when, Scripture says, when we get to a place when we say evil is good and, and good is evil, that that's a really bad place to be, right? And in our culture, for a while now, we've been to this place where someone it says they're calling evil good. In other words, they've said is this, this sin, this, this sin of sexual immorality, the sin of, 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 you know, just free sex or whatever you want to look at it as, is good. Okay, that's, that's, that's wrong, right? Evil, calling it good. We look at homosexuality, we look at transgenders, and we look at changing and, and saying, I can recreate myself. Evil, calling it good. That's where we're at. But we have now went to the other side of that coin. Our culture now is saying the good things are evil. Christianity is not right. It should be snuffed out. The truth, I don't want to hear it. You shouldn't. It shouldn't be in the public square. It shouldn't be preached. It shouldn't be proclaimed. As I've said before, Canada has, has laws on the books that you cannot preach about homosexuality that is a sin from the pulpit without risk of being put in jail. That is coming to our world, our culture here in the United States. And it's coming faster than I ever thought it was coming. But in the midst of all of that, God has also always been clear about his promise to bring peace and that we can have it. And that's what I want you to see here today. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I really wanted to paint this, this picture for you, the, feel the weight of it all, so that we can now begin to embrace and celebrate what God has done and how he's, how he's prophesied it and how he's promised it to us. I'm going to start basically back with our scripture last week, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, to us, a child is born. Now, once again, we're 700 years before this little baby is born, right? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There it is. 
of all the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. Isaiah now is, is proclaiming and prophesying that a baby is going to be born. He doesn't say when. It's, it's, we know now, looking back, we have the, the beauty of, of hindsight. We can see there was hundreds of years after this. And not only that a baby was going to be born, a child was going to be born, but a son is going to be given. He's claiming that God is going to have a son, that he's going to come as the son of God. And all of the government of all time is going to be on his shoulders. He is going to be king, ultimately. And he should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He is God in the flesh. He's everlasting. And there will be peace forever. Isn't that our greatest need is eternal peace with God? What do we see here? If we jump forward here in Isaiah chapter 53, once again, 700 and some years beforehand where Isaiah lays out in this beautiful chapter in Isaiah 53, the whole picture of of who Jesus is and how he comes about and, and all of the things that happen to him and how he ultimately gets crucified and he takes upon our sin. It is one of the, the most beautiful scriptures and and probably one of the, besides maybe theologically Romans chapter 8, but Isaiah 53 is just incredible. I just want to read you one small verse. Chapter Chapter 53, verse 5. It says, but he, referring to Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified. He was crushed for our iniquities. The wrath of God was upon him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah sees, God reveals to Isaiah that this man that's going to come, that's going to be crucified, is going to take the penalty, the chastisement of our due penalty of sin. The weight of God's punishment and wrath that is rightly reserved for humanity is going to be poured out upon him. Who would even understand that 700 years later, this man is going to come and exactly that's going to happen. He's going to live a sinless life and God is going to punish him. And he's going to become sin who knew no sin so that we could have a righteousness not of our own. Move forward now to 500 years approximately before Christ. Here we see in um, Zechariah this, this beautiful picture here. He's talking about both advents. What are the advents again? The, the coming, right? The, the looking for, the, the anticipation of the coming of Christ. The first advent is when he becomes a baby. The second advent is the second coming when we see him again. Here in this beautiful passage of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, he basically has both of the advents tied together. Let's look at the first one here. Verse nine, chapter 9 and verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. What is he, is, what is he announcing here? 500 years before Christ, he's announcing something. He's saying, look, there, there should be rejoicing. There's going to be a time, Israel, where you're going to rejoice. Why? Because who's coming? Behold, your king. He, he's claiming that, 
that Christ this, this, is going to come, this person is going to come, and they're going to be what? They're going to be a king. And, and this person that comes that's going to be king is going to have a righteousness, a, a sinlessness, a, a right standing that we don't understand, right? That, that we can be perfectly righteous. He can be perfectly good. So he announces he's a king that is coming. He's righteous and having salvation is he. Christ comes with salvation in hand. The ability to fully reconcile people back to himself. To take away the penalty of sin. And really, what, what is our fear? It's not sin that we're, is our problem. It's, it's the wrath of God. It's the judgment of sin. And here's the one who can do it. Salvation is he. Not, not some thing that he can give us to do some, some formula. No, it's in him. Salvation is he. In the person of Christ. Humble. Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. But what did God do? He exalted him and put, had, he has the name above all names. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he, this is just, I just love this. He throws in on a colt the fold of a donkey. Like, like the really cool stuff was those big things. Like he came as a king, he's righteous. Salvation is he, right? He, he, it's him, right? He's humble. But by the way, he comes in on a donkey. I mean, like, like if you were making that up, that wouldn't have been part of the story. But it's, 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 it's kind of the beauty of, of God's revealing himself in such a, an innocent way to, to, to humanity to, that even a child can see, oh my gosh, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem to be crucified on a donkey. And 500 years earlier, God takes this moment to share with Zechariah to put that down somewhere. So that we, some 2,000 years later, can be, look back and say, oh my gosh, it's real. I can't question it. Nobody's going to make that up. Then he turns in verse 10, and he talks about the second advent. That was the first one. He's announcing that Jesus is going to come as a baby. And then he's ultimately going to come and, and die. The second advent. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Now, many times Ephraim was one of the tribes, but many times it represented Israel as a whole in Scripture. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim or Israel and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Okay, how, what is that picture of? It's the picture of the second coming. He's saying, look, when I come, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to break the bow. There's not going to be any more war. Right? There's not going to be any more war. I'm going to cut off the war horse. Break the bow. Cut it off. I will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. There's not going to be anything that is not under his authority. 
from sea to sea. It's going to be his. He will bring a peace that only he can bring. And it says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant. Now this is, he's talking about now this is a picture of Christ, right? The blood of the covenant, the shedding of Christ's blood, the, the sacrificial system, right, of Jesus coming as the sacrificial lamb and dying. He says, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What is, what is, what is this reference to? Remember Joseph and his, his brothers beat him up and, and they were jealous and where did they put him? Put him in a pit waterless pit because that's what they did with people a lot of times they didn't have all the you know out in the wilderness they didn't have jail cells people they didn't have places they could lock people up a lot of times they just put him in the pit they can't get out you threw him in the well you threw him in the bottomless pit and so what 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 Zachariah is saying here says look when he comes he's going to deliver people from the pit he's going to bring salvation and 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 reconciliation he's going to redeem people out of the pit just like he did with Joseph And so we see that peace with God was definitely prophesied and promised. Next thing I want to show you is that the peace, the Prince of Peace was proclaimed. The peace, the Prince of Peace was proclaimed. So so not only was he prophesied, not only was he promised, not only was it stated clearly in Scripture that he was going to come on a donkey, he would be king, he would carry, he would be salvation itself, all of those things that he would be stricken for us and our the chastisement that brought us peace was going to be on him. All of that was clearly stated hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. But before he arrives that night, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Think about that for a second. There are shepherds out, outside of Jerusalem in, in the fields and the pastures. It's nighttime. The sky is... Um, Incredibly beautiful, I'm sure, and, and stars, the heavens declaring the glory, and, and they're just taking care of their sheep, they're minding their own business, and an angelic being appears to them. Now, you're going to see here in a minute that they were afraid, and I want to make the, I want to make the case that I think that, yes, the angelic being may have been something that they were afraid of, but I think there's more to this than that. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. See, I think a big part of their fear was that the glory of the Lord was there. The glory of the Lord. Imagine now, the creator of the universe. His glory, his presence, his incredible glory was there. And they were overwhelmed. Look, it's one thing to see an angelic being. I mean, that's overwhelming. I get it. But the glory of the Lord? What what happens when Isaiah in chapter 6 sees the glory of the Lord? It says he becomes undone. He becomes undone. He sees his own sinfulness. He sees his own depravity. He sees the the holiness, the goodness of God, and he becomes undone. And here I think what happens is is this creature shows up, this beautiful creature shows up, and he's going to make this announcement. But ultimately what causes them to, to be fearful is they see their own sin. They see their greatest need at that moment in contrast to the glory of God. And they were filled with great fear. I would ask you a question. When you see your greatest need, do you have fear? When you, when you understand and read and, and read Scripture and see the glory of God, sometimes maybe even when we're worshiping together and we're singing and, and you just sense the glory of God, His goodness, is there any reverence at those moments when you see yourself as you really are? 
Once again, I'm, I'm not saying I want you to, to come in and be afraid. I'm saying that when you understand that, you will understand and appreciate the grace and the mercy of God and his birth in a way that maybe you've never seen it before. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So he's bringing good news. They don't know what the news is yet. It says it will be for all people. I want to I stop here for a second. I think we have to be really careful how we, how we look at this, context, this, this scripture here. When it says for all people, some people would say, see, um, Christ came for all people. Like, everybody's going to be saved. There are people that believe that. It's called the Unitarian Church, kind of, that, that everybody's going to believe. Everybody's going to be saved. If you study this word, and you look at it in the Greek, it's la, lalos, L-A-O-S. And it means Israel or God's people. Now, let's think about the different in the context here. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for God's people. Not for all people. It is good news in the sense that if you're one of God's people, it'll, it'll be good. But is it good news if you are not one of God's people? No. Ultimately, it's going to bring judgment because there's going to be a way of salvation. And if you turn that down, it is not going to be there. So it's really for his people. Right? And he's speaking here, and this is why some people say it's really to, to even to Israel. It ultimately extends to the church, to God's people. But he's really making an announcement. And he's saying, I'm coming to my people for all of Israel, for God's people. This is the good news that's being presented to his people. Right? Now, what is the good news? And we'll see how these tie together. What is the good news? For in this day to you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. So the good news is that a baby's going to be born. And he tells them where it's going to happen. It's going to be in the city of David, which is a place called Bethlehem. Why do they call it the city of David? It's because David lived there. David was born there. David was anointed king by, by Samuel. His, his father was, a, was from Bethlehem. And so it's the city of David. So he says, what's going to happen? It's going to be born this day on the city of David. And who's going to be born? Not just a baby, but a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah is going to be born this day. That is the good news. And why do they appreciate that? Because they clearly understood their greatest need. Because they're raising sheep that many of are going to be sacrificed because of the great need that they have. Their whole culture was so structured around the sacrificial system. They understood their greatest need. We have got to a place in our culture we don't understand our greatest need anymore. We think our greatest need is that, you know, I need, I need a cable package. It's not 150 bucks, right? I, I, need, I, need, I need a bigger car. I need a bigger house. I need this. We, we just feel our greatest need. I need more money. I need this or that. They understood their greatest need. Which is why the next couple verses are so important. It says, and suddenly there was, a, was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now notice the, the first thing. So the angel, this angelic being, is here to make this announcement. As he makes this announcement, other angelic beings shows, shows up, a whole host of angelic beings. And what is the first thing that they say? Glory to God in the highest. This is not about you, humanity. 
This is about what God is getting ready to do. This is the, the, the God is going to, he's come and he's going to deliver his people. He's going to make a way for them to be forgiven. And glory to him because he's doing it. They've been waiting to see. Scripture says that the angels look on to see what God was going to do. They understand that they sinned. They understand that now that they've been separated from God. And the angels have been waiting to see because the angels didn't understand what God was doing yet. And now they're saying he's doing something. This is what he's doing. And their first thing is to bring glory to God in the highest. And then it says on peace uh, on earth, peace among them, those who, whom he is pleased. All right, if you've got your Bible, um, you, you may have a, a version that's different than this. But if you have a King James Bible, um, which in this particular translation was the 1611 uh, that was done by King James, it's going to say goodwill towards men. If you have an NIV, it's going to say, to those whom his favor rests. If you have an English Standard Version, which is what we're preaching out of today, it says, those with whom he is pleased. So I want to just share something with you. I think there's great reason to believe and understand that the King James Version is not exactly accurate here. And you say, well, well, the King James is like, nobody touches the King James, right? Well, you got to remember, the King James was, was... put together by King James, and he had a commission to be able to put together. But over the last 400, 500 years, some things have happened. We've discovered a lot more manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 40s and 50s. And it's helped translators be able to understand some of the the nuances of certain words and certain things in the Greek. That's why we live in a time of of biblical accuracy that, that no one in history has ever lived at. We have an understanding of Scripture in a way that that no one has except for like we've had it. And so when it says here in the King James, goodwill towards men, you could read that and say, oh yeah, God had goodwill so he brought his son. No, that's not really what it says because once they've realized after some some further looking at the the manuscripts and some of the, the wording here, they changed it in the NIV and the ESV, and it says, on those on whom his favor rests, with whom he is well pleased. Not on everyone. Now, remember what I said earlier about it's not to all people, it's to his people. It ties with this. It's to whom his favor rests. God is coming for his people. And if you're a believer this morning and you've been born again in Christ, you're, you're there. You're absolutely, his favor has rested upon you. Praise God. But remember, he's not, he's not coming for everybody because not everybody's going to come to Christ. He's not coming to save everybody. He's coming for those who will give their life to him. He's coming for his people. On the people his favor is resting upon. The Gospel of John chapter 6 says, you know, you can't come to the the Father, unless he first draws you. There's a favor there. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are dead in our sin, but God made us alive with Christ. There's favor there. Two more points real quick. Peace comes to those who have been justified by faith in Christ. So Christ is pronounced, he's proclaimed, he's come into the world to gather his people And his people will believe and they will have faith. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be justified? It means that we've been set apart. It means that we've been made right. It's, it's a legal term. It's a, it's a financial term. We've been, we've been reconciled. We've been made right. It's, it's, it's like we were, had a debt, and God says you have no more debt. Just like that. We've been justified. Therefore, we've been justified. Why? By faith, by believing in what God has done. And who has done it? We have a peace that is generated through that belief and that faith, and it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This morning, if you're a believer, you stand in grace. Right? We have access to this grace. We stand in it, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Verse 3, not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Which leads me to my last point. Peace through Christ is not void of suffering. It's in spite of it. Peace through Christ is not void of suffering. It is in spite of it. What is Paul saying here? He says, look, we've been justified by by faith. And because of that, we have a peace through Christ, right? That God has made it possible. We have a peace with God through Christ, only through him. And we have this peace. But then he turns right around. And in verse 3, he says, but not only do we rejoice in that, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because suffering is a part of it. And so, so many times we, we think in the, in, the, in the Christian world that, that if, if we have been justified, if we become a believer, if I've, I've been born again, then my life will be good. God will have favor upon me, and I will have a good life, and I won't have to suffer. No, Paul clearly is saying, no, that's, that's not the case at all. And that's the point here. Peace through Christ is not void of suffering. It's in spite of it. It's in spite of it. Isn't that the beautiful picture of of Christ himself even, right? He, he loves us. He's obedient even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of, of the crucifixion. That's the beauty of, of what God is doing in him. And so as believers, why would it be any different for us? God gets glory when we praise him in the midst of our suffering. Anybody can praise him when everything is going good. That's an easy thing to praise God for. But in the midst of our suffering, in spite of our suffering, when we are rejoicing, that's what it matters. And the question is, can you have a peace in the midst of suffering? Because that sounds like a contradiction. Yes, you can. It's, I'm not saying that that's not simple. I know that many of you have been going through some very difficult suffering things in your life. But I believe God makes it possible that you can have peace in the midst of the storm. That's what the whole scripture is about. Think about Noah and the ark. The wrath of God was coming upon the world, upon humanity's sin. They were in the ark. God had made a way for them. In the ark, there was peace. Outside, there was wrath and judgment. But inside the ark, there was peace. You say, yeah, but there, no, but there was a peace. Yes, I'm sure they were hurting for, for what was happening, what was going on. Maybe they didn't clearly understand, but there was a peace. The disciples, the apostles, all of them, 
most of them, I can't say all, but most of them, history says, have, were, were, have died for following Christ. But yet I believe they had a peace even in the turmoil of the sinful world that was killing them. That's why they could give their life away because they knew that something was greater. That, that's the peace that transcends all understanding. Peace through Christ is not void of suffering. You know what that is? That's the prosperity gospel. That's the one that says, oh, no, when you believe, you can have everything that God has for you, a perfect life. That is not the truth of the God's word. It's in spite of it. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It holds us in the midst of the suffering. Jesus tells his disciples this right before he's going to be taken away to be crucified in John chapter 16, verses 32 to 33. He lets them in on it. He says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He's saying, look, guys, suffering is going to cause you to scatter. You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. You're going to give up on me. Right? But what's he going to say? Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't have to depend on us? (laughs) Because we abandon him daily. He goes on there and says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So, so what will we have in the world? Well, you will have. You will have tribulation. That's, that's a promise. You will have tribulation. There will be hardships and suffering and turmoils and death and disease and all of those things and communication issues and relationship issues and financial issues and health issues. You will have all of it. But in me, I've said these things that you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Right? There it is. The person that we have peace in is Christ because he has overcome the world. He has reconciled us back to God. And so what is the takeaway this morning? Because I want you to see the greatest need in your life. I want you to see it clearly. I want you to feel the weight of it because when you do, you will then celebrate the first advent here in a way that maybe you've not celebrated it. When you read the story of Luke, the history of Luke and Jesus' the pronouncement, when you read other scriptures here with Mary and Joseph, you, you'll see the beauty and, and you'll, you'll see the glory of God and the, the, the salvation, the peace that God is bringing and what he's doing to bring it. And so the takeaway this morning is this Christmas, celebrate the peace that we have in Christ. Celebrate the peace that we have in Christ. It is the only place to find ultimate peace. I was talking with um, an individual after first service, and there's a lot going on in their life, and, and, uh, and, and they're just lacking peace. They're not really sleeping very well. And, and we talked about jobs and this, that, and the other. And, and I said, so where are you at with the Lord? And, and they kind of said, well, I'm not really. And I said, okay, we need to talk some more. I said, don't have time right now. I said, but see, you're not going to be able to sleep well even if you decide on what job you're going to have because ultimately, until you have ultimate peace with the, 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 with the Prince of Peace, you will never have peace in anything else that will matter. 
There'll still be a, an anxiousness in you about something because your eternity is not set where it needs to be. There, there's this truth that's been written on your heart that you're possibly denying or suppressing, and you got to get past that and understand that God has made a way for you. And so I just want to encourage you, as I did this young gentleman, is that you need to celebrate the peace that we have in Christ. All right, I want to leave you with a, a benediction found from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, we desperately need to recognize and understand our greatest need. Our greatest need is to have a restored intimacy with you, a reconciled life, one that we can get back to walking with you as Adam and Eve did before their rebellion. And Father, when we understand that greatest need, and Father, we will rejoice in what you've done by bringing your son into the world. We rejoice that you brought a king, a baby, that he himself is salvation. And in him, in salvation, there's found no one else except for him. And so, Father, as we get ready here in just a few weeks to celebrate his birth, Lord, help us to rightly see Scripture. Help us to be humbled by it. Help us to realize the, the great need in our culture, in our churches for truth. Help us to be ambassadors of that truth and hold on to it and proclaim it even when persecution comes. Suffering will come for proclaiming the gospel, Father. It is here now, and it's unless there's a great revival, Father, it's only going to continue. But help us to stand firm. Help us to be loving and gracious. But help us to continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that you came to make peace through Christ for those that would receive you and honor you. We ask you all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.